Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include National Geographic Expeditions, trips with Nat Geo experts to more than 80 worldwide destinations, including safaris, cruises, and train journeys. NatGeoExpeditions.com slash explore. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com. Welcome to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, across the state this week, kids are heading back to class. But as the new school year begins with concerns about a statewide teacher shortage, there are also discussions about new laws limiting how certain subjects can be taught or even discussed. This week, a group of students and educators filed a lawsuit challenging Florida's HB7, also known as the Stop Woke Act. That's the law that bans Florida educators and students from learning and talking about issues related to race and gender in higher education classrooms. This law is part of the disturbing trend set by DeSantis and his supporters in the Florida legislature to ban or chill speech. Meanwhile, a new national report says there's been an alarming spike in proposals around the country restricting the freedom to learn and teach. The report also highlights escalating threats to students' First Amendment rights. For what that means for Florida schools, I spoke with Jeremy Young, Senior Manager of Free Expression and Education Programs at PEN America. Hi, Jeremy. Good to be with you. So tell us about this new report out from PEN America, expressing alarm at what you define as educational gag orders. What is an educational gag order? An educational gag order is a legislative effort to restrict teaching in the classroom, either K-12 or in higher education, about topics like race, gender, American history, or LGBTQ identities. There's been an epidemic of educational gag orders around the country starting last year, and this year there's been an incredible escalation. Over 250% more educational gag orders introduced in the United States this year than last year. Uh, Seven of those have become law and two of those in Florida. Right, right. Let's talk about the two laws which many Florida voters have been uh, made familiar with. Uh, Florida HB 1557 or the Parental Rights and Education Act. Critics call it the Don't Say Gay Bill. And then HB 7, the Stop Woke Act, as it's also defined. Let's start with... uh, the first measure, the parental rights and education measure, which restricts the discussion and teaching around LGBTQ issues and identities in public schools. Can you explain why PEN America, which is a a literary and a human rights organization, is so concerned about this measure as school begins in Florida? PEN America has uh, been around for 100 years, and as you said, for most of those, that time, we've been focused primarily on uh, human rights ab- abuses uh, for, against writers in other countries. Uh, six years ago, we started a program to look at uh, censorship in, of writers and, and literature and teachers in educational institutions. And, and originally, this was focused on uh, censorship really, really emanating from the left on college campuses. Uh, but lately, we have been more concerned, even more concerned, with uh, some of the legislative restrictions uh, coming from the right, uh, restricting what teachers can teach and, and can say in the classroom. HB 1557 is a perfect example of what we're concerned about. This bill, uh, as your listeners know, is 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 a bill that is uh, you know it makes it illegal uh, for teachers to discuss homosexuality or anything to do with uh, gender identity in the classroom in grades K through three and illegal outside of particular approved uh, uh, state standards in grades four through twelve. Now. What that means in practice is unclear. This bill is vague, um, and the penalties are are, are high. We're seeing school districts telling teachers they can't mention that they're married to uh, a same-sex partner. 
stu- if students ask about uh, someone who, who in their class whose parents is, uh, are, are of the same sex, teachers are not allowed to answer the question. Um, materials are being excluded from libraries. We're, we're seeing, uh, you know, warning labels slapped on books that have same-sex uh, uh, illustrations of same-sex partners, even books for babies in, in, uh, uh, in Collier County in Florida. And, you know, these, what this law does is it censors teachers, it censors students, um, you know, and it, it does away with, with free expression in the classroom. And so we're very concerned about it. In fact, you go so far as to say that this measure in Florida, along with others you're tracking around the country, is a legislative war on education in America. That's strong rhetoric. You, you believe that state legislatures like Florida's are waging war on education. Can you talk a little bit more about why you define these bills, uh, the, and in Florida they're now laws, as actual war on teachers and, and, and public education? You know, the problem with these laws and HB 7, you know, is, is, is probably just as bad as HB 1557 in Florida. The problem with these laws is that they are, uh, they, they restrict the ability of teachers to make decisions about what, uh, you know, based on their professional expertise about what students need to learn in the classroom. And they restrict the ability of students to learn about differing perspectives uh, and different aspects of their communities. The outcome uh, of these laws uh, will be a, a less educated uh, student populace. It will be a, a, a teachers self-censoring, uh, school districts censoring teachers uh, in, in advance of the laws because they're afraid of the laws, teachers quitting, worsening the teacher shortage in Florida and other states, and ultimately, students growing up without a full and complete understanding of the kind of people that they're, who live in their community, of the world around them. And ultimately, that's bad for democracy. You also cite the Stop Woke Act, which became law in Florida. Now, this deals with K-12 through and higher education, but also public and private employers. Uh, and it affects the teaching about the history of race in America, color, national origin, uh, this is being challenged as well, particularly from businesses who feel that they should be able to conduct diversity, equity, and inclusion seminars, for example. But your focus here is about education and what you call a gag order. How do you see the Stop Woke Act limiting robust discussion of, of America's racial history? Well, the Stop Woke Act is the very worst of a series of bills and laws that we've seen passed around the country. Nineteen states have a law similar to this, uh, and, the, and the one in Florida is probably the worst that we've seen. Um, and what this law does is it bans teachers not from mentioning uh, a concept that the drafters of the law deem to be divisive, basically discussing various perspectives about race and slavery in American history, assigning uh, materials by by uh, you know, acclaimed uh, BIPOC authors. Not only does it uh, prevent them from from uh, promoting some of these ideas, but it prevents them from including them in a course. So a teacher would not be able to assign materials if a school district or a state administrator deemed them to be divisive, even if the teacher didn't agree with what was in the material, even if the teacher was presenting a point-counterpoint or holding a student debate, uh, these positions would not be able to be discussed. Now, that's, that is, you know, wh- when you think about censorship <laughs> and how it was defined in the Constitution, that is exactly what the founders were most afraid of, that the government would come in and tell teachers and students and people and citizens what they can and cannot think or say. That is exactly what these laws do. Now, Governor Ron DeSantis and other supporters of these measures in Florida say they're being done to avoid the indoctrination of students and also to champion parental rights. You disagree with those arguments. Why? You know, PEN America uh, absolutely supports the right of parents to have to play a key role in their children's education and the right of children to have parents advocate for them. That is, that is not really what is in question here. The concern that we have is that these, these bills are not actually 
preventing indoctrination. They're creating indoctrination. It is not teachers who are telling students what they are not allowed to think. It is these laws that are telling students and teachers what they are not allowed to say in the classroom. That's the very definition of indoctrination, and we oppose it. You also express concern with potential punishments of educators, surveillance, as you say in the report, and the punishment of educators who uh, defy these new measures. You say in the report that Florida and other states have become increasingly punitive about these educational gag orders, as you call them. How big a, a concern is that for you? Well, the, the yeah, it's a very big concern, and what we're seeing uh, is is you know these these laws don't uh, you know don't necessarily punish teachers directly in Florida, although they do in other states. The punishment is aimed at the school district. Uh, you know, Florida HB seven includes a monetary fine or a loss of state financial support if the law is is violated. Uh, HB fifteen fifty seven allows for a private right of action where various uh, you know where parents in the school district can sue the school in civil court. These punishments are designed to bleed districts financially, um, and they are designed primarily as deterrents to make sure that the district uh, forces teachers to avoid discussing these particular topics in the classroom, or and, and f- frankly, far beyond what the law even requires them to avoid. Uh, we've uh, a study from the Rand Corporation that came out last week showed that one quarter of all teachers in the country have been told by some district administrator that they are not allowed to touch on certain topics in the classroom because of one of these laws. Uh, and the penalties are the main reason that this is happening. The districts are simply afraid of losing their funding, as as you would expect. And so they're they're doing the censors work for them. Now, you mentioned earlier in our talk that just a few years ago you were concerned about censorship efforts from the left, particularly on college campuses. Now you're focused more on these bills that uh, are being defined as censoring from the right. Can you explain why PEN America champions uh, opposing censorship, why that's a key part of your mission? We believe in the power of the word to transform the world. And what that means is that we oppose uh, any attempt by anyone to tell uh, writers or, or readers or speakers or listeners uh, what they can and cannot hear or say or think. And, you know, we are a nonpartisan organization, and we do and continue to oppose uh, threats to speech from both the left and the right. Um, on college campuses, uh, probably 80% of our commentary in recent years has been opposed to threats from the left because we've seen a lot of these threats. The difference is, for the most part, with a few exceptions, the threats that we've seen to free expression on campuses from the left have been social pressure. Uh, they've been they've been campaigns to to cancel a speaker, for instance. What we're seeing now in these educational gag orders is far more serious than that. It it is government censorship with the power of the state uh, controlling what teachers can say. That's very scary, and we really are devoting as many resources as we can to it. More at the PEN America website, Jeremy Young, Senior Manager of Free Expression and Education Programs at PEN America. Thanks for joining the Florida Roundup. Thank you. The Parental Rights and Education Law and the Stop Woke Act have caused some confusion among teachers and school districts as they try to work out what can and can't be said to avoid lawsuits. WUSF's Carrie Sheridan spoke with Andrew Spar, president of the Florida Education Association, about how the state's largest teachers union is trying to help members navigate the new situation. What we're telling our teachers first and foremost is they have an obligation, they have an ethical and moral obligation here in the state of Florida to make sure that every kid is welcomed, is safe, is secure, is loved, is supported, and is getting the education they deserve and need. And they should absolutely continue to do that. Nothing changes in that sense. These laws are meant to create confusion, are meant to create chaos, and they are doing that. Uh, But overwhelmingly, parents see these laws as distractions away from what matters, and we should focus on what matters, which is our kids. I talked to a history teacher who's concerned about the removal of key parts of history from next year's civic standards, like landmark cases like Roe v. Wade and Texas v. Johnson, a case that established that flag burning is a protected form of speech. 
These things won't be in the standards in 2023-24. Does that mean you can't teach it if it's not there? And, you know, are you facing questions like that from teachers? Yeah, I think there's a lot of concern as it relates to the rewrite of the civics and social studies standards, what's being left out, the whitewashing of our history. We've heard from people who say, you know, they talk about how Washington and Jefferson were opposed to slavery without talking about, but they owned slaves. You know, those are the kinds of concerns and questions. Yes, we're absolutely getting from our members. And, you know, I think what we have to realize is that right now, what we should be doing as a community, as people who support public schools, is we should be talking to everyone running for office, whether it's school board, whether it's state house, state senate, the governor's mansion. And we should ask them, what are they doing right now to address the massive teacher and staff shortage? Why? Because the teacher and staff shortage is the greatest threat to the education of our children. If we don't have bus drivers to get kids to school on time, kids are missing out on the education they deserve and need. If we don't have teachers in the classroom, and we currently have between six and 8,000 teacher vacancies in the state of Florida when school has already started in most of this state. If we don't fill those teaching positions, kids are missing out on the education they deserve and need. And since the parental rights law spells out that parents can take legal action for any perceived violation of the law, some teachers are worried about facing those kinds of lawsuits and would, would they have to pay their own legal fees? If they're a member of the union? No. If they're a member of the union, we would be there for them and we will have our members' backs. Um, there's no question about that. Uh, our national unions have already said it. We have said it. Um, you know, if our members are teaching kids the content that they are required to cover, which they're obligated to cover under the code of ethics here in the state of Florida, we will have their back. And there are court challenges going on right now over a lot of what the state of Florida is trying to implement. And keep in mind, some of those court challenges are outside of public education because some of this legislation not only impacts our public schools, it impacts private work places, right? Like Disney and other companies who operate in the state of Florida. And so there's a lot of court cases out there right now. And I think some of this, as it moves through the court, is going to create and allow for some more clarity around all of this. But I think rightfully so, a lot of educators are concerned with the direction that our state is going in essentially trying to rewrite history. And do you have any teachers who are, you know, in support of these laws or who are okay with all of these changes? Yeah, I'm sure there are, right? I mean, at the end of the day, there are people who are buying some of this extremist conversation that's happening. They may think it's not happening. They know it's not happening in their classroom, but they'll say it may be happening somewhere else. But the reality of it is all of this legislation was based on lies, was based on false pretense, and was done for political purposes. And at the end of the day, what we hear from parents, what we hear from almost all of our members is politics has no place in the decisions being made in our public schools. And Sheridan also spoke to Gail Foreman, a history and psychology teacher at Booker High School in Sarasota, about how she is handling the new rule in Sarasota Public Schools. She says in the first days of school last week, she had a talk with some students. And several of them have preferred names. So, you know, I quietly said to them, look, you know I'll use your pronoun and your preferred names. I can't until we get a parent thing. So how, what do you want me to do? And they're like, it's okay, Ms. Foreman, use my last name. Okay, because legally I can do that. In Sarasota County, any request for a name or pronoun change goes to staff, the principal, the school counselor, and then to the parents, who can grant or deny permission, and the school must act accordingly. Foreman says some of her students used to be able to come out to her in class, even if they weren't out at home. By law now, I'm required to report that. And they get a hold of the parent. The parent comes into school. We believe everything's all hunky-dory, and that kid goes home, and then we get a call that the kid's committed suicide. I, I don't want to come home every night and know that I may have contributed to one of my students being harmed. The new law says schools may not discourage or prohibit parental notification of critical decisions affecting a student's mental, emotional, or physical health. I'm Carrie Sheridan in Sarasota. Up next, new polling shows some unexpected swings in the Florida governor's race. That's in a moment. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. We'll be right back. Mayo Clinic, when the search for the right answer becomes the most important journey of your life, when a clear diagnosis would mean the world to you. 
when you're looking for an accurate opinion, not just another opinion. When finding new approaches and new options could help you find hope, you know where to go. Mayo Clinic. Find out more at mayoclinic.org Florida. Taxes, the environment, energy, education, health care, a state that's gaining nearly a thousand new residents every day and the ongoing quest for resources to meet that growing need. These are critical issues that affect everyone in Florida, and they're just some of the issues we follow every week on Capital Report. It's your direct connection to what's going on in Tallahassee and what it means to you. Tonight at 6.30 on WJCT News 89.9. Join WJCT and the Community Foundation for an evening with NPR's Michelle Martin. Weekend host of All Things Considered, Michelle will join WJCT's president and CEO, David McGowan, for a dynamic, thought-provoking conversation. Tuesday, September 13th, 6 p.m. at the WJCT studios. For tickets and additional information, go to wjct.org events. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits. Always be celebrating. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, new polling out this week shows Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed edging Charlie Crist as they battle it out in the Democratic primary for governor. For more on the governor's race, other races, and interesting issues percolating around the state, I spoke with Mike Bender. He leads the Public Opinion Research Lab at the University of North Florida. Mike Bender, good to be with you. So let's get into it. UNF's new poll finds a very interesting state of play in the Democratic primary for Florida governor. You see Nikki Freed edging out Charlie Crist a bit. Tell us about the latest numbers. Yeah, we had Nikki Freed up four points over Charlie Crist, 47 to 43. And those are numbers that were very surprising to me. Uh, mostly because there hasn't been a ton of public polling on this race the last couple of months. And what we have seen has been having Charlie Crist ahead by you know, various numbers, but some more substantial than others. Uh, and this is a very, very different outcome than, than I was expecting. And everybody always asks when I release a poll, what surprised you? Well, this surprised the heck out of me. Right. Uh, apparently, according to your data, Freed has reversed the eight-point lead Chris had when you last pulled this in February. How much do you feel the overturning of Roe versus Wade has changed the dynamic, if at all, of this race? I think Roe is certainly at play here. And, and I say that not because I'm just guessing or because of what happened in Kansas a couple weeks ago or things like that. We did ask voters how they felt about Roe, not just the overturning of it, but if it would make them more or less or didn't have any impact on their likelihood to vote this election cycle. And of the voters that said it would make them more likely to vote, 47% of them are, support, are more supportive of Nikki Freed compared to only 40% being supportive of Charlie Crist. And the folks that were, where it said it had no effect on their vote outcome they were 55% for Christ and 42% for Freed. So the folks that are being mobilized by Roe are much more supportive of Nikki Freed, and I certainly think that's playing into a little bit of that momentum. The other piece is people are starting to find out who she is. I know this might sound crazy to your listeners that are plugged in and are aware of Florida politics, but when we asked job approval ratings of Nikki Freed over the last several years when she's been agriculture commissioner, her don't know responses are up around 50%. Now they're down to 30. That's still a big number, but there's a lot more people that know who she is and have opinions of her. And I think from a Democratic primary perspective, uh, we know who Charlie Crist is in Florida. We've known who he was for decades. And if you're not on that bandwagon and you're looking for an alternative candidate, now you've found one at least that you know a little bit more about. So I think that's kind of playing into her hands a little as well, too. 
Your poll also shows, though, that no matter who wins this primary, whether it's Nikki Fried or Charlie Crist, they still trail incumbent governor Ron DeSantis, but not by quite as much as when you last polled the issue. He's still favored to win. Yes. Yeah, this is this is one of those things where you win the August race. Woohoo. Great. And then you're staring at climbing that mountain. And for Nikki Fried, we had her down seven. Charlie Chris, we had him down eight, you know, roughly the same number. I will say, though, that those numbers are based on registered voters. So even though it might look like, whoa, you know, Ron DeSantis is only up 50 to 42 or 50 to 43, uh, in a likely voter model where Republicans are much more likely to turn out in midterm elections, that number is probably closer to double digits. And in Florida, at statewide races, double-digit numbers are just unheard of, at least in the last several decades. Mm -hmm. So that is an enormous lead. And to kind of put that in perspective, in the same poll we asked about Rubio and Demings in that race, and we had Demings up by four points. So I'm not saying that, you know, Demings is going to win or anything like that, but just the difference of a D plus four in a Senate race and an R plus seven or eight in a governor's Mm -hmm. race, that's a 12-point swing. And uh, DeSantis is really well positioned for the fall. Let's talk a little bit more about Demings versus Rubio. Central Florida Congresswoman Val Demings running against a two-term incumbent Senator Marco Rubio. You mentioned the possible effect of the overturning of Roe versus Wade on the governor's race. How much is that providing a win, do you think, at Val Demings' back as she now appears to be outpacing Marco Rubio? He could potentially be unseated, which would go against conventional wisdom. What about that data and and how can we interpret those numbers? Yeah, I think there's a a couple things to think about for for the Demings race and the Rubio race. One is, you know, Roe and what does that do to turnout? We all know that turnout in midterm elections is much lower than turnout in general elections. And folks that are less likely to be impacted by that tend to be older, tend to be more Republican. So Republicans tend to have a little better turnout during these midterm elections. There's going to be some more NPAs in the race as well in the midterm that, you know, you have to think about what for those voters, what are they going to do? But how this plays out is really fascinating because not only do you have Roe, and, and listen, people can talk about what the impact is going to be. Nobody knows. I don't necessarily expect a rush of 18 to 24-year-old women to the polls and be voting Democrats, but I don't know that, and, and nobody really does. So that would absolutely help a Val Demings campaign. The other thing that I think helps... And, and not and sorry to cut you off, uh, not just yeah. 18 to 24-year-old women, women of all ages who potentially are upset about what the Supreme Court did. Yeah, absolutely. And But those suburban women, you know, older women, they tend to vote anyway. So mm-hmm. it's just, do they pull the trigger for somebody different? Yeah. The, the, the young folks, and I say we, you know, I am not in the young <laughs> folk category. I used to be at one point. Um, I guess I should say they, they are not very good at turning out to vote. And, and that's something that... Uh, you know, it, does it change in, in this election or not? Um, I'm a guy that says you have to show me that before I believe it. Sure. Uh, we're speaking with UNF pollster Mike Bender about the Florida governor's race and more. Now, you did find, speaking of Roe versus Wade, that bipartisan majority of Florida residents opposes any further restrictions on abortion in Florida. About 59 percent. So that was interesting. But they also told you that the biggest problem facing the state today is the cost of living. So that is still, Mike, the overwhelming issue hanging over these midterms, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And and understandably so. Florida is getting hit in a couple different directions. Obviously, prices, we're all familiar with that. Uh, But also housing here in Florida not just cost of housing, which is a national issue, and rent, which is also a national problem, but homeowners insurance and what that, that market has looked like on the verge of collapse over the last year. Uh, those are that's millions of people getting thousands of dollars in, in cost hikes, 
and that's a big expense, and that's something that is difficult for either a Ron DeSantis to maybe try and blame Biden on that, right? It's easier to blame Biden for gas prices and the economy writ large. Homeowners insurance and things that are special to Florida, it's much more difficult to blame the national elected officials for that. So that's something to keep an eye on because we had cost of living at 43% for the most important problem facing Floridians. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's a really big number. Right. Uh, It's interesting to see uh, in a distant second place are education and abortion and reproductive rights. Eight percent of respondents say those are the next most important problems after cost of living. You also asked Florida voters who they believe won the 2020 election. Sixty percent said Joe Biden. Thirty eight percent said Donald Trump. That's in line with national numbers, isn't it? Yeah, uh, again, depending upon the state, the more Republicans you have, the, the higher that number tends to be. Uh, we have seen a, a little bit of a shift because we do ask if Biden definitely won, Biden probably won, Trump probably won, Trump definitely won. We've seen a little smidge move from the definitely won to the probably won category. But again, uh, that's still you know high 30s of, of percentage of voters think that Donald Trump won that election. Now, this wasn't a poll you conducted, Mike, but I'd like to ask you about it. Uh, Axios, uh, a digital publication, used a third party to conduct some focus groups last week with 12 Florida voters who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, then switched to Joe Biden in 2020. These swing voters who rejected Trump in 2020 also told the focus group leader that they believe Governor Ron DeSantis's agenda has become too extreme. They talked about stuff like ending Disney's self-governing status, removing a Hillsborough County state attorney from office and other moves. How do you interpret that focus group finding? Yeah, I, I think the... Democrats and Republicans get all the attention, and turnout gets all the attention, and and rightfully so. Uh, But where those kind of independents or in Florida parlance, NPAs, nonpartisan affiliates, where they fall, and if they move in large numbers one way or the other, and they don't just split it down the middle, uh, that's really influential for elections. And though Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis do not appear to be best of friends currently and could potentially could be political rivals uh, come the 24 Republican primary, uh, those folks and where they sit between Trump and DeSantis, they might not have an impact in the primary, but they're certainly going to have an impact in the general. And if they view these candidates as too extreme, you know, is that something that the Democrats, you know, presumably Joe Biden would be able to cash in on again in 24? A lot to watch out for in this extraordinary time. And I want to thank you, as always, for your insights. Mike Bender, he runs the polling lab at the University of Florida, their public opinion research laboratory. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. And you're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Well, thanks to increasingly partisan redistricting in Florida and a closed voting system, The August primary is most likely going to decide several races in the greater Tampa Bay area. The general election in November features some candidates with little to no previous political experience. So are some voters feeling left out of the Democratic process? WUSF's Steve Newborn talked about this with Tara Newsom, a political science professor at St. Petersburg College. Is there any kind of a malaise that we're seeing in the electorate? You know, some people feel like their voices aren't being heard, but they're being drowned out by the more strident voices on the left and the right. I think Floridians are very much engaged, but they have a quiet resolve this election. But you got to remember that Floridians are pretty smart. They know that in the last gubernatorial election in 2018, that DeSantis only won by 0.4%. He was the lowest performing gubernatorial candidate across the country. So I think we need to be really careful to not interpret our independent voters as being not engaged. I think they just have a quiet resolve that their voice will come out and be most powerful in November. Just the fact that there are only seven races in the Tampa Bay area that will be decided on the primaries in the middle of summer at the end of August when a lot of people are out of town or on vacation. 
that maybe this could lead to maybe a feeling of disenfranchisement. I think America and Florida is feeling that sting of the partisanshipness of having a governor and a legislature in lockstep. Yes, maybe we don't have an enormous amount of selections in our primaries because of gerrymandering. And also because I think the sting of running for public office right now, it comes with a price that a lot of reasonable citizens don't necessarily want to pay. But I think that we can't judge Florida's voters by the primary. It could be that Florida takes a page from the Kansas voters who they also had a closed primary. They also are a red state, but they by 60-40 resoundingly came out in favor of more fundamental freedoms for women. And we have similar types of legislation in the state of Florida. So I think number one, we have to just wait and see if our voters are gonna be motivated, not necessarily by the candidates, but by the issues. The conventional wisdom has a lot of the Democrats on fire because of the recent abortion decision, both in the Supreme Court and in Tallahassee, limiting abortions here in the state. How much of a factor do you really believe that is going to motivate Democratic voters to get out there that ordinarily wouldn't vote? I think that we cannot underestimate that democracy is not built on laws, but on principles. And when those principles are offended and the principles of liberty, of freedom, of sovereignty of body, those are extremely important to everyone in the state of Florida. And I think you're going to see a galvanized front of maybe those that haven't necessarily aligned with the Democratic Party. They may align with the no party affiliate or independent, but they will come out in force in November because these are fundamental freedoms. And, you know, many people argue that the executive branch and the legislative branch in the state of Florida in lockstep went too far. And the sort of grassroots movement that I'm seeing across my community in Tampa Bay and St. Petersburg, and of course on college campuses, is not this far reaching liberal agenda that we hear about. It's more a reasonable, thoughtful um, understanding of what the constitution and our principles afford us, which is liberty, equality, access to voting, access to education, um, and I think those are the kind of things that drive the principled parts of us, no matter where we lie on the political spectrum. And I think those people are going to come out and vote in November. Well, Tara, what have you been hearing out there from the people you've been talking to? What are the issues that seem to matter the most to them? Is it kind of inflation or is that just the movement of the moment? I think that inflation is certainly hit every single person in America, including me and including you, I'm sure, and everyone that listens to you. You can't ignore that you go to the you go to the grocery store and you go to the gas tank and you also get your paycheck and the math doesn't work out. But I can't underscore enough affordable housing because I work at St. Petersburg College. We are an open access college. We invite everyone to come and get an education wherever they are. And one of the biggest issues that our students are facing is how do I not only go to work, go to school, and be able to afford to live in St. Pete. And Tampa Bay as a greater area has the same problems in Tampa as it does in St. Petersburg as it does in Sarasota. And the other issue that I think that is continuing is freedom of expression and freedom of assembly and freedom of participating in democracy. I think a lot of students and a lot of community grassroots members that are just individuals that show up to different activities feel the heaviness in our state. And that heaviness is the heaviness of, are we as free as we could be? And are we living through a time in which many of our individual freedoms and at least the perception of those freedoms are being stymied? And, and that's really what I'm hearing. Tara Newsom is a political science professor at St. Petersburg College. Thanks so much for your insight. Thanks for having me. For Tampa residents, you can read more about the upcoming primaries and find out about the changes in early voting and mail-in ballots at WUSFnews.org. Just click on the Democracy 2022 button. And when we come back, why Florida's youngest voters are leading the way in getting the state to commit to clean energy. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Back in a moment. Housing starts fell, initial jobless claims fell, retail sales, yeah, they fell too. We will break down the economic week that was coming at you next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6, here on WJCT News 89.9.
25 years ago, Disney's TV adaptation of Cinderella featuring a black princess and a Filipino prince premiered. I actually thought the industry wasn't ready for our uh, colorblind casting version of Cinderella, but society was. One of the stars reflects on what's changed. That's this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on WJCT News 89.9. On the next Fresh Air... We remember actress Anne Heche. She died Sunday from injuries sustained in a car crash. We'll listen back to our interview from 2000. And we'll feature our interview with Jonathan Banks, who played private investigator and hitman Mike Ehrmantraut on Breaking Bad and on Better Call Saul, which had its series finale this week. Join us. Today at 1 on WJCT News 89.9. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, when Florida Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed announced a plan earlier this year, aimed at putting the state on a path toward cleaner energy. She did it after a campaign from some 200 young Floridians, all of them under the age of 25. These young voters had found something in state statutes that Florida leaders had apparently overlooked. Now, the law requires Freed's department to set goals for enhancing renewable energy use in the state. In Florida, the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services oversees the state's Office of Energy. Florida is among the most vulnerable states to climate change and yet up until now has lacked any real plan to address the main cause behind warming temperatures and a plan to wean the state off fossil fuels as well. So just how did this group of young adults make progress on renewable energy here in Florida? For more on that, I spoke with Amy Green of WMFE in Orlando. Amy Green, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining the Florida Roundup. Well, thanks for having me. You've been writing about the young people behind Florida's new renewable energy goals and the dramatic impact that they've had. Can you take us back to how this all got started? This involves an organization called Our Children's Trust, and this is an advocacy group that specializes in litigation on behalf of children. And um, and um, several years ago, the organization uh, with a group of children uh, sued the Obama administration over uh, the federal government's fossil fuel energy system. Um, and and one of the children involved in that litigation was a boy named Levi Dreheim, uh, who lives in Brevard County here in Florida. And a few years later, Levi got involved in similar litigation against the Rick Scott administration here in Florida over Florida's fossil fuel energy system. And in Florida, um, and the federal lawsuit as well, both were eventually thrown out. But in Florida, the children who were involved in the Florida litigation um, were not ready to give up. So the attorneys who were advocating on behalf of them went back to the Florida statutes and discovered a mandate that had been in the statutes for some 15 years requiring the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, and in Florida, that's the department that oversees the Office of Energy, requiring that department to set goals for moving the state toward cleaner energy. Right. And so Levi became sort of the public face of these young people, only 15 years old, he was enjoying living life on the beach on a barrier island, but he started to see some changes. Is that, and his family did too, is that what motivated him to get involved? Exactly right. You know, Levi um, grew up in Satellite Beach um, in Brevard County and led this very beachy life, um, you know, loved to ride his bike to the beach and swim with his friends. And, um, and um, over time, the family began you know, experiencing climate change impacts, um, you know, a series of storms led to flooding um, at their house, um, and they had to, 
use sandbags to prevent the water from, um, you know, getting inside their house. And um, eventually the family decided to leave the barrier island, um, you know, where Levi had grown up um, and moved to the mainland and they moved to Melbourne. And, um, and so, you know, yes, of course, that's one of the reasons, you know, that's certainly one of the things that motivates, um, that motivates Levi. Right. Having to leave the barrier island. And you quote him as saying he was disappointed but frustrated with Florida's leadership. So what did Levi and the other young people do then to try to push the state into complying with this statutory mandate? Right. You know, Levi, he just was such a bright kid, you know, such a, you know, charismatic, bright kid. And, you know, he talked to me about, you know, I, I asked him, you know, how he felt after Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed announced that, you know, her department would be setting these goals for moving the state toward cleaner energy. And, and you know, he talked to me about how he was proud um, for holding the state leaders accountable. Um, but he felt like, you know, they were capable of doing more. And, you know, he even likened the situation to, um, you know, that of a parent, you know, when, you know, you know, a child who I think he used the example of, you know, running a race and, you know, the parent is proud of the child, um, but the parent also knows that, um, you know, the child is capable of more. And so I just thought that was, you know, such a fascinating way of putting that for, you know, a 15-year-old who, you know, you know, is obviously, you know, very mature on, you know, these very complex scientific and political issues. Out of the mouths of babes, I guess, uh, the kids leading <laughs> the adults. So they, they filed a petition admonishing the state leaders and especially Freed for ignoring the mandate, calling on her Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services to set goals for moving Florida toward 100 percent clean energy by the year 2050. Freed then announced a proposal to implement those goals earlier this year. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. As we continue the conversation with Amy Green of WMFE, Amy, you report nearly half of the states in America, along with Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, have these types of goals for hitting 100 percent clean energy by mid-century. This is seen by scientists as important to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. Uh, The Biden administration also is aiming for 100 percent carbon pollution-free electricity by the year 2035. Now, in Florida, the state legislature has been hostile toward these types of goals. So how much teeth does this commitment really have, do you think? Right. So, you know, that's the question at this point. You know, in recent years, we've seen um, uh, legislation um, that effectively bans um, local governments who, um, you know, like here in Orlando, have, you know, kind of stepped in on this issue in the absence of, um, you know, goals at the state level. And uh, this legislation effectively bans a lot of these local goals. And so what will happen now with these renewable energy goals that Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Fried has announced um, is that the utilities, you know, it, it sets a series of benchmarks that utilities, you know, will have to work toward meeting as they, you know, work toward getting to 100% clean energy by 2050. And the utilities will have to file their 10-year reports with the Department of Agriculture, which will review them for compliance. And so the question will be, you know, will the Public Service Commission, you know, enforce these goals? And um, and so when I talked with um, the attorney at our Children's Trust who was involved in this petition for rulemaking, you know, she talked to me about how that's her hope, um, you know, but others... Um, you know, other clean av- clean energy advocates are concerned um, that um, more enforcement or more accountability is needed from the governor and the legislature. You also report that even though 
Florida Power and Light, Florida Power and Lights parent company Next Era Energy says it's going to eliminate carbon emissions completely by the year 2045. Natural gas is still Florida's primary energy source. 73% of the energy mix, that is double the national average. The young Floridians say in their petition that we will need five generations just to achieve parity between natural gas and renewable energy use, that we're not capitalizing enough on Florida's solar potential. There, there have been a lot of reports about Florida Power and Light slow walking solar power, especially for residential customers. Is that going to be a big piece of this puzzle? Right. And I mean, and, you know, that's the other, you know, interesting thing about this story, which is that, you know, for these young people, climate change is not, you know, this hypothetical thing that is far off in the future. You know, um, by the time Levi is, is in his 30s, you know, by the DeSantis administration's own predictions, um, Florida coastal areas will be facing significant and chronic flooding. That's why, you know, that's one of the things that motivates their, these young people. And that's one of the things that makes their voices important on this, which is that, you know, they are the ones who, you know, will be affected most. Affected the most. Amy Green of WMFE in Orlando, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks. And here's some more environmental news. A new federal wildlife plan to help save the endangered key deer is drawing scrutiny from conservationists. As WLRN's environmental reporter Jenny Stelatovich tells us, this latest critique is an effort to come up with a more detailed recovery plan. Conservationists say the latest plan falls short because it fails to come up with measurable ways to determine the survival of the deer. What does it mean for a population to be be stable? What does it mean for the species to be viable? What is the foreseeable future when we're talking about climate change? Jason Tatoy is a senior attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. The Center and Sierra Club upped efforts to better protect the deer after the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced plans last year to strip the tiny deer of protections. The group says the service needs to come up with more specific goals to prevent that kind of political maneuvering, especially in the Keys, where there's always pressure to develop. I'm Jenny Stiletovich in Miami. And that's our show. The Florida Roundup is produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tway are producers. Catherine Hobbs is associate producer. Peter Mayers is WLRN's director of radio operations and our technical director with engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Isabella Da Silva. Richard Ives answers the phones. Theme music by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Melissa Ross. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Friday. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com.